This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. friends we are back welcome back to the transcend human podcast and our series on eschatology or the study of end time events so it has been a few weeks uh, my apologies but there has been a lot going on in my life in the life of my family so since our last episode uh, we actually moved from Irvine California to Corona California a distance of literally less than 25 miles, and yet quite an undertaking when you think about it, right? Moving an entire house that has supported five people from one place to another on your own. You don't really realize how much stuff that you can accumulate after you've lived somewhere for seven years. Uh, in terms of the move itself, I think I estimated that we took two and a half trips with a 20-foot U-Haul truck, seven trips with our Honda Odyssey minivan, and six trips with our Jeep Wrangler. Not to mention a few friends uh, helping out and loading their pickup truck at one point and helping us that day. So on the day of the move, we had about 12 people, I think, helping us for our four to six hours. Super helpful. Not sure how we would have done it uh, if we had to do it just ourselves. But like I said, we're all moved. And now comes the task of digging out of boxes, looking for things that you can't find and wondering where on earth did I pack that? And of course, setting up things in new ways that will take some time to get used to. But apparently, I'm feeling comfortable enough to pump out the next episode in our podcast. So let's review where we've been. Episode one called The Doomsday Clock, uh, we discussed our social and cultural beliefs about the end of time. Uh, episode two, the flip side, we dove into end time beliefs that are based on spiritual or religious belief systems or structures. Uh, we looked at some of the major world religions and their beliefs about the end of time. Episode three, carrying the torch. Uh, we kind of discussed the history and the origins of Christian eschatology. Episode four, choosing sides. We discussed the high level categories that most Christians fall into when it comes to end time events. Episode 5, Making It Plain, we jumped into Bible passages that talk about the end of times in plain language that's easy to understand. And then last time, uh, episode 6 called The Left Bookend, uh, we really moved into the deep end of the adult pool and we walked through seven stories in the book of Daniel. And then we walked through our first piece of apocalyptic prophecy. So today, uh, we move a bit deeper into the pool as Daniel has more visions and we get more details as to the things that will happen in the future. So today's topic, Transcending Eschatology, Part 7, Expanding on the Statue. Chapter 1, The Four Beasts and the Little Horn. Chapter 2, Barnyard Animals and Another Little Horn. And Chapter 3, Get Out Your Calculator. Chapter 1, The Four Beasts and the Little Horn. So the last time we looked at Daniel's first apocalyptic prophecy found in Daniel 2, the king's dream, where he saw a huge statue made from different elements 
and a rock eventually hits this statue and destroys it and fills the whole earth. And the Bible did a pretty good job of explaining exactly what the dream meant. In the interpretation of the dream, Daniel makes it very clear that Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon was the first kingdom, the head of gold. And from that point on, there would be consecutive kingdoms that would rise and fall until the end of days. The head of gold was Babylon, the chest and arms of silver, the Medes and the Persians, the belly and thighs of bronze represented Greece, and the legs of iron represented Rome. And then the feet that were part iron and part clay kind of describe how Rome would fall apart and there would be a bunch of divided kingdoms for the rest of the time, right? This is where people start to interpret things differently. Christians start to interpret this part of the statue differently. Some see the feet of iron and clay as representing a fractured Roman kingdom right before Jesus arrived the first time. Others feel that the feet and ten toes represent ten kingdoms or countries in Europe that will be strong and yet fragile until the second coming of Jesus. Think European Union, the Euro, Brexit, and all that good stuff. The EU has 27 members now, but each of these countries can be traced back to the original 10 that Rome split into. And finally, the rock cut from the mountain, the forever kingdom. Some believe that this was Jesus coming back to earth to die on the cross, or actually coming to earth the first time to die on the cross, thereby completing his mission. Others believe that this refers to the second coming and God setting up a kingdom that will never end. So there you go, a sweeping prophecy that takes us all the way from Babylon, back in the six, five, five and six hundreds of BC, all the way down to the end of time, depending on your interpretation, of course. But just when Daniel thought he had seen it all, he gets another dream. So let's just read it word for word and then talk through it. Daniel's second dream comes from Daniel 7, verses 1 to 14. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the other. The first beast was a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground, like a human being, and it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear, and it was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then, in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. And as I looked at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like a human and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. 
I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire poured out. Flowing from his presence, millions of angels ministered to him, and many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were open. I continued to watch because I couldn't hear the little horn's boast because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdoms will never be destroyed. So there you go. Again, this can be a little overwhelming when you first read through it. But if we just keep reading, the Bible interprets itself for us. In verses 15 to 28, Daniel explains that he is very troubled by the things that he had seen. So he asks for help. And being near the throne in heaven, he asks a being that is standing there. And the being explained it like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Sound familiar? The four beasts represent the four kingdoms. And we already know that those are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Next, the being explains the unique nature of the fourth and terrible beast. It had iron teeth, it trampled its victims under its feet, it had ten horns, and a little horn grew up out of the ten. Now, these are the characteristics or identifiers of the little horn. It destroyed three of the ten kingdoms. The little horn was human. The little horn spoke boastfully or arrogantly. It waged war against and oppressed God's people. It defies the Most High. It tries to change times, laws, and festivals. And eventually, all of its power will be taken away. And then the dream ends the same way the first one does. The being explains that at the end, all sovereignty, power, and greatness, and all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to God and his people. This kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. Now, sounds pretty straightforward, right? Uh, But as you get into the ten kingdoms, and especially the little horn, that's where things start to get cloudy, because different camps interpret these very differently. Similar to Daniel 2, Here are the three variations that emerge related to the Ten Kingdoms and the Little Horn. So, if you're a historicist, um, historicists typically interpret Daniel 7 this way. So, the kingdoms described are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then, Rome breaks into ten kingdoms that exist in some form or fashion until the end of time. Out of these ten come a power that is different than the others. It takes control by doing away with three of the ten kingdoms. And most historicists believe that the little horn is the Roman Catholic Church, or the papacy. 
Now, walking through the list of identifiers above, it's true. I mean, the Catholic Church does fulfill many of those identifiers. And if this is true, then the Catholic Church would rule with an iron fist and lose their power at some point. Now, what does a preterist believe? Well, preterists typically interpret Daniel 7 this way. The kingdoms described are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. However, they view the ten horns as ten zealot rulers, or Caesars, who fought for power and control before Jesus came the first time. The little horn is typically thought to be a specific person called Antiochus Epiphanes. When Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled the last part, the part about the kingdom that would never end. Then, in 70 AD, when the Jewish temple was destroyed, this signified the end of an old covenant and ushered in a new covenant. Christianity became the state religion in Rome, suggesting that the saints had inherited the earth. And finally, you have futurists. The futurist uh, typically interprets Daniel 7 the way historicists do, right? There are very little differences um, until we get to the Ten Kingdoms. The little horn, also referred to as the Antichrist, is believed to be a very real person that will be unveiled at the end of time. Typically, futurists do not believe that the little horn had anything to do with the Pope or the Catholic Church. So there you go, Daniel 7. Chapter 2, Barnyard Animals and Another Little Horn. So the next dream that Daniel had, you guessed it, expands on the first two. Again, let's read it together, and then we'll unpack it when we get to the end. Daniel 8, 1-14 So during the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision, following the one that I had already seen. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa, in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two horns standing beside the river. One of the two horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way, to the west, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. While I watched, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. The goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both of his horns. Now, the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of this power... His large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and to the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying the temple. 
the army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled upon? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. So there you go. That is Daniel's third dream. And again, we don't have to wonder what it means because the Bible follows right up with the explanation. This time, it isn't a being near the throne of heaven. We actually get a name. In verse 16, we hear someone call out, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. So Gabriel came to the place where Daniel was and offered the information. Daniel immediately falls to the ground in terror at the sight of Gabriel and lays there passed out until Gabriel can wake him and help him up. And when he does, he explains the vision and that it isn't for today. It's for the end of time. And apparently this is pretty important because he explains it three different times and in three different ways. In verse 17, he says, You must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. In verse 19, the first part, it says, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. And then at the end of verse 19, it says, What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. This, my friends, is actually one of the reasons that I have a really hard time with preterism, right? This view of prophecy that suggests that the end of time was when Jesus died and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That is one way to interpret the prophecy, but it completely ignores other prophecies about Jesus coming in the clouds, every eye seeing him, his return being a much larger and more raucous event than it was the first time. So from here on out, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the preterist view of, or the preterist interpretation of prophecy. However, I will try to provide both historicist and futurist, or the dispensational view, mostly on the, um, the passages in the future. So anyway, back to the explanation of the dream. So Gabriel moves to the obvious. In verse 20 to 22, he explains, the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none is as great as the first. One thing you'll find in prophecy is that it will point to very specific people, civilizations, kings, etc. Not that they are the only ones, but that they were the most recognizable, or the ones that had the largest impact on history. In this case, there were numerous Greek kings. But who was the most recognizable? Of course, Alexander the Great. And that's the period of time that this prophecy is actually talking about. The large horn is most likely Alexander the Great. And the four that came up after most likely are the four kingdoms that formed after his death. Um, the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom, the kingdom of Pergamum, and Macedonia. Uh, 
Each of these kingdoms were led by somebody, most likely a general in Alexander's previous regime. But Gabriel explains that none of these leaders were as powerful as Alexander, and history shows this to be true. And finally, Gabriel identifies and describes a very powerful person with these characteristics. This person will be fierce, a master of intrigue, will be very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction. He will succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders, and he will devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy man without warning, and he will take on the prince of princes, assuming this to be Jesus himself. But he will be broken by a power not of this world. Now, I'll be honest with you on this one. This part of prophecy is a little bit muddy to me. I can see it from a number of different angles. It could describe a Roman emperor, right? Someone with lots of power who did some really bad things. Or it could be referring to the little horn or the Antichrist at the end of time. But to me, it doesn't really matter because either way, it doesn't change the overall narrative that's being written. In terms of interpretation, I don't know that there is a huge difference between the historicist and the futurist view here. The concept of the ram being Medo-Persia and the goat being Greek or Greece is pretty obvious. But like we said in the Daniel 7 dream, historicists typically believe the powerful figure described as the little horn, which refers to the pope or the position of the pope, what we call the papacy of the Catholic Church. Futurists uh, typically believe that this powerful figure is either Antiochus Epiphanes or they believe that it is somebody toward the end of time um, that will rise known as the Antichrist. Chapter 3, Get Out Your Calculator. So let's finish things up today with a little mathematics tutorial. I know nobody likes math, but believe it or not, prophecy includes a lot of numbers. Not just numbers, but dates, times, all of those things. So let's look at three things really quick. First, the importance of a number. Second, prophetic math. And third, dates and times. So first, the importance of a number. In Jewish culture, numbers were very important because they represented things. Sometimes these things were specific, and other times they were more general, a general representation. I linked to an article in the show notes that lists all of the numbers and their significance, but for us today, I think that these ones might be the most helpful as they show up a lot in prophecy. So the number one, pretty obvious, that means divine, whole, complete. It's the idea that there's only one God. Three typically refers to unity. Think of the Trinity, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Three and one, united in purpose and effort. Four, think universality, right? You've got your compass with north, east, west, and south. Uh, there are four angels that surround the throne of God, stuff like that. Next is seven, often referred to as the perfect number. And we see it all over the Bible, from the seven days of creation to seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. Ten refers to completeness. You have ten fingers and ten toes. Apparently that's enough, all we need, right? In Daniel, there was a statue with ten toes and a beast with ten horns. 
Both represent the complete breakdown of society by the Roman, after the Roman Empire. Next is the number 12, often referred to as the kingdom number, the number representing God's kingdom. There were 12 tribes in Israel. Jesus had 12 disciples. Um, but even think about it in our physical world. We have 12 hours on the clock face. We have 12 months in a year. Interesting to think about how many times we use the number 12. And finally, there are derivatives of 12. So the number 24 is used a lot, as in the 24 elders that surround the throne in heaven. Then there's the measurement of 144 cubits when they talk about the New Jerusalem. And then there are the 144,000. 144,000 saints mentioned in Revelation. I think that's a pretty good start. Next, let's do some prophetic math. So this part is either going to freak you out in a good way or have quite the opposite effect. It's called the one day equals one year principle or the day year principle. And even though it's been used for a very long time, as you can imagine, it's been debated and interpreted differently depending on whether you are historicist, preterist, or futurist. For me, this wasn't an option. The, the day-year principle is foundation to my upbringing, to my understanding of prophecy. Basically, you couldn't read prophecy without it. It was a required key that would unlock all the right doors. Basically, something you, that you had to have in place in order to interpret prophecy correctly. The idea is that the Bible uses two types of time, standard or regular time and prophetic time. Standard time is obvious, right? So in Matthew 12, 40, it says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The reader is meant to take that literally, three actual days and three actual nights. But then there is prophetic time, which is the length of time described in Bible prophecy. And this is where the key comes into play, sort of like a code used by the spy world, right? If you're a spy, you send messages that are encrypted in code that only the receiver can understand because they have the key, and the key helps to unlock the message. Similarly, the Bible hints at the fact that time in prophecy works a little bit different. Simply put, when it says one day, it really means one year of literal time. Like I said, this isn't new, and it isn't strange in any way. In fact, this was the default understanding of most eschatologists for quite a while. So how did people arrive at this conclusion? Well, there are a number of references to the idea throughout the Bible. Here's just a few. So in Numbers 14.34, it says, The Israelites will wander for 40 years in the wilderness, one year for every day spent by the spies in Canaan. Ezekiel 4, 5-6, the prophet Ezekiel is commanded to lie on his side for 390 days, followed by his right side for 40 days, to symbolize the equivalent number of years of punishment on Israel and Judah, respectively. Daniel 9, 24-27, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. The majority of scholars do understand this passage to refer to 77s of years, a total of 490 years, even though it's called weeks. And then in Genesis 29, 27, Laban 
required an additional seven years of work in contract for Rachel's hand in marriage, but refers to it as a week. Now I know, these verses only hint at it, right? They don't come right out and say, you need to replace one day with one year in Bible prophecy. But scholars took these hints, and they went back and they used the key, and they found that prophecy actually makes a lot more sense when you use the key. What do I mean by that? Well, before the key was found, nothing seemed to measure up, right? Because every time period was much shorter, right? If a day is equal to a day, you have some pretty short periods of time, meaning that most of the prophecies should have already been fulfilled. But there were no historical events that lined up with those prophecies when they were just days, which must have been really confusing for the men and women who were trying to figure it out using that paradigm. But once the key was discovered that one day equals one year, all of a sudden time periods started to line up and it started to become clear that you could actually identify historical events that matched what the Bible was talking about. Now, not everyone agrees on which historical events fulfill which parts of prophecy, but things started to make more sense and become a little less crazy. So I'm going to leave it there for now, but it's probably obvious that I believe in the day equals a year prophecy, and I believe that it's mandatory in order for us to understand what the Bible is talking about. So let's finish up with dates and times, since Daniel has started throwing some of those out there. But before we do, let me just say that the day-year principle isn't part of everyone's interpretation the same way it is for me. I'm not 100% sure how a preterist would interpret time periods in prophecy, though it probably doesn't matter if they believe that all prophetic events have already taken place. To me, this suggests that they do not believe in the day-year principle. And futurists seem to believe in the same idea that a day is equal to a year, just with some interesting caveats. It sounds like that it's used in some cases, but then not others. And they also believe that not all time periods are meant to be consecutive. We're going to talk in a little bit about Daniel's 70 weeks. And the futurist basically splits those 70 weeks into two chunks. The first 69 weeks, or years, are said to lead up to the birth and the life of Jesus. Then the last week, or seven-year period of time, is moved all the way down to the end of time, starting with a secret rapture and then ending after seven years of tribulation and the return of Jesus for the second time. So again, we're not going to spend much time talking about preterism, but we will try and make some sense of the difference between the historicist view and the futuristic view. So we're going to finish up our time here um, with the time periods discussed in the two dreams we just walked through. So in Daniel 7, with the four beasts and the little horn, and Daniel 8, with the ram, the goat, and the little horn. In the first dream, Daniel 7.28, we read, speaking about the little horn, He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. This is what we call the 1260-year prophecy, and it only makes sense using the day-year key. The two bookends of Daniel and Revelation refer to this period of time in a few different ways. Like we just read, a time, two times, and half a time, 
This is meant to believe this is believed to mean three and a half years, which is twelve hundred and sixty days. It's also referred to in some places as forty two months, which is equal to twelve hundred and sixty days. And 1260 days, which of course equals 1260 days. Now, these time periods are mentioned in these various formats at least six or seven times throughout Daniel and Revelation. Each one equals 1260 days. And when we apply the day year principle, we get 1260 years, which is why it's referred to as the 1260 year prophecy. Now, here's the breakdown. I believe this is one of the times where futurists do not use the day-year principle. Not 100% sure, but I believe that they view this as literal time. They basically take two three-and-a-half-year periods of time and move it down to the end of time. You have the three-and-a-half years of regular tribulation, and then you have three-and-a-half years of great tribulation, together making up the final seven years from Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Historicists, on the other hand, tend to view the 1260 days as actual years. Some historicists don't even know what that means and only guess at the fact that it will be a terrible time. But many historicists are able to accurately determine the starting point and end point for the 1260 years. And they can do that because they've determined who the little horn refers, refers to. Um, if you believe that the papacy or the Catholic Church is the little horn, then it helps you narrow down some of the historical events and eventually find the time period. For starters, you look for a time when power was given over to the Catholic Church, allowing them to persecute people who did not believe the way they did. And when you find that date, it typically comes out to 538 A.D., because that's when Emperor of Rome granted the Bishop of Rome power over all churches in the kingdom, which led to years of persecution, crusades, inquisitions, and all of that, what we refer to as the Dark Ages. Then, at some point, Revelation explains that this power will have a deadly wound, but will heal from that wound. So when did the Catholic Church lose this persecution power that they had, and, and the power that they had enjoyed for 1260 years. Well, in 1798 AD, in a war with France, the Pope was taken captive and eventually died in captivity. And the general who took the Pope hostage, General Berthier, claimed that the political reign of the Catholic Church had come to an end. So there you go, 1260 years. Finally, in the second dream Daniel had, in Daniel 8, we are introduced to a second period of time. We read, Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them said, How long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled upon? The other replied, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the temple will be made right again. Then, at the end of the chapter, we read, This vision about the 2,300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. This is what we refer to as the 2,300-year prophecy. 
And from my research, I couldn't really find a good explanation as to the futurist interpretation of the 2300 years or the 2300 days. There's a chance that they haven't really determined what it is, or they may not want to apply the day-year principle and are looking for a 2300-day period of time that seems to fit into history. And my guess is that many non-Seventh-day Adventist historicists probably believe a similar thing. Because the 2300-day-year prophecy is actually one of the unique interpretations that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has that sets them apart from other traditional historicists. Now, I'm not going to go into the starting dates and the end dates for this prophecy, uh, because this one is tied 100% to the 70 weeks of Daniel. And that's for another episode. So that's it. Uh, Let's land the plane. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, It was great having you here. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've been together, but I'm glad that we were able to get back. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. At this point, we are way deep into the pool and our toes are barely scraping the bottom. But isn't it fun? Of course it is. Uh, Next week, we are going to dive into the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is actually one of the major prophecies that all interpreters of it have to deal with, right? Futurist, historicist, preterist, everyone has to deal with the 70 weeks of Daniel. So that's for next week. Um, Like I said, everyone, thanks for joining. I hope you have a great week. And until next time, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.